0: Hey everybody, Mark D I T guy, Dad. And feeling feeling back at home. Feeling back at home. Things have been a little crazy. I haven't left my house. Don't make no mistake. <laughs> I'm forever locked in my home. However, feeling more at home. I was feeling a little out of it trying new things. Feeling a little more at home. And uh hey, today we're gonna talk about a Buddy Cop comedy approaching action movie. Tango in cash. Now, uh, yeah, this one's an interesting one, so I will just roll the trailer and get right into it. I'll tell you one thing, whoever set us up is really connected. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Are you doing? Relax. Soap. And don't flatter yourself. Meet Ray Tango. He likes money. He's come, Kong, he's a go but doesn't bother with Cash. Meet Gabe Cash. He won't dance around trouble and doesn't mind stepping on toes. I hate you karate, guys. Two of L.A.'s top rival cops are having a (laughs) good time staying in rhythm. You know me, huh? Yeah, I hear you're the second best cop in L.A. That's funny. I hear the same thing about you. But they're going to have to work together Even if it kills them. Right now! Ah! We'll take it. No. That's one of a kind. We won't put a scratch on it. Did you sleep with my sister? I was so drunk, I honestly, I don't remember, okay? Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. (laughs) Tango and Cash. So by the numbers... Tango in Cash was released December 22nd, 1989, with an opening weekend of $6.6 million domestic. I don't have any numbers on the worldwide, and um, I don't know that it m- was much of an international release, but it did make $63 million back on a $55 million budget. At this point, I would probably say that the majority of the budget was on Stallone, which at the time was making money on everything he did. I didn't find a number on his salary though, but uh, it's kind of generally safe to assume that he wasn't getting terribly underpaid. I found some kind of bullshit aggregator site that said that he maybe pulled 15 million for Tango and Cash. And you know, hey, that makes the story a little more interesting. I also saw a similar website that said that Tango and Cash made 100 million more than everyone else seems to think. So there's that. Runtime is 104 minutes. Looking at a hot 30% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.4 on IMDb, which makes zero fucking sense. The longer I do this, the less I understand the IMDb ratings. It's got a meta score of 41. Seems reasonable, right? Between Stallone, Kurt Russell, Terry Hatcher, and Jack Palance, 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 they have won three Golden Globes, one Emmy, one Oscar, and one SAG award. Many nominations, but this movie woof. There's a lot going on, but I think that some of it comes from the production issues really, of which there were several. I don't want to lead off with that, but it will absolutely come around. Doom doom dad to get doom doom get bam bam. Kirk Russell has a long career that started as a, he started as a child actor his father to my knowledge jesus fucking christ what's a podcast record without goddamn phone noises ah uh, pardon pardonnez moi s'il vous plaît anyway his his father to my knowledge was was in the business right that's kind of my thought there and and it makes sense that he feels so effortless to watch let me fix this microphone here for a second. I'm not saying he's a Daniel Day Lewis or the next or previous Daniel Day Lewis. However, he he fits right into movies. The better he's cast, the better he fits. Sure, but he really fits. He's got a, he's got a lightness to his being, a confidence. You know, this is the same guy that was in 1969's The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes that I believe you can stream right now, on Disney+, Plus, if I'm not mistaken. And that wasn't even close to being in his first credit. He was already established. He was working. 1981 saw him slay as Snake Plissken in John Carpenter's Escape from New York that was immediately followed up with The Thing, which is one of the most sci-fi horror things to have ever been both sci-fi and horror. And uh, 86 is a hot one with Russell portraying a main character in a cult classic, Big Trouble in Little China, I believe the character's name is Jack Burton, and he drives a big rig. Yeah, 88, he was in that weird tri- love angle, love alligator, not a triangle, well, maybe a triangle, but between uh, Mel Gibson and Michelle Pfeiffer in Tequila Sunrise, I imagine it being a love triangle, I haven't actually watched Tequila Sunrise, but he was a bit of an item, he was a hot commodity. He shows up on this movie as a last-minute replacement for Patrick Swayze, who had dropped out to be in Roadhouse, which many dudes and bros love to this day. But that helped Swayze's career probably more than this movie would have. Anyway, you know, Russell brings uh, his likeness. He brings himself to the movie. He's the fun one. Ego completely checked at the door. And that helps. He's cash uh, John John Cash uh, Tim Tim Cash build this cash on IMDB Gabriel Gabriel Cash that's right the Avenging angel I'm not saying he's Brad Dorff, who can be this creepy pathos riddled weirdo and I'm not saying that he'll just disappear into a role like a chameleon. you're getting a Kurt Russell character you know which they're not all the same but he brings he brings himself to each of them but if you've done your homework and you're the the filmmaker if you've done your homework, you will be highly successful with a Kurt Russell character. Terry Hatcher plays that magical stripper that the 80s action movies tended to have, you know, as one does, where they were just so prestigious. The movie does use this to get some egregiously needless boobs, and she's not participating in the movie as too much more than an endgame MacGuffin. You know, and... uh, of how they, they they left her house and then they go and pick up the the super rv the the big dick of doom and uh suddenly she's hours away held captive in the secret airport base by the bad guys you know it's one of those and and they <laughs> there's a clever conceit that it is portrayed that she's the love interest of tango but she's actually tango's sister so you know an attempt was made She's Tango's sister, and she plays a potential love interest for Gabriel Cash, because this movie definitely goes to some places that may have made a certain movie-going population uncomfortable, and you probably heard a little bit about that in the trailer. Jack Palance, and I'll settle on Palance, I like that better, is a notable and notorious, maybe, actor that found a lot of success in the mid-century Western pictures, and just dude-worked a lot. I don't even know where to begin talking about his career, but I'll say that I I probably first saw him in City Slickers, where he played Curly. And he's got an intimidation factor, a gravitas, a seriousness. He's really got it, and genuinely. But he's chewing up scenery in this one. Uh, his character, Yves Perret, who is decidedly not French, not even a little bit, doesn't even do one home, hon home, 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 not None of that. None of the French accents, N- nothing. He just chews up scenery in front of a video wall and does dumb shit like break into a jail to be a dick to the imprisoned cops, Tango and Cash. And more on that in a little bit. Well, maybe some now, right? So he, he, he Jack Palance's character, Eve's, um, Basically, plays the surrogate of Mitchell Ryan's the general from Lethal Weapon. And as to how we get there, well, that's a that's a different story. And I think to get there, we need to talk about John Peters. John Peters is somewhat of a mega producer in Hollywood and has worked on so many things, and some of them were absolutely huge. There are movies in his filmography that I've talked about on this podcast. And there are movies in his filmography that I will likely talk about on this podcast at some point in the future. But John Peters is only human, and humans are fallible. And I'm not saying that to be a dick, but he's got a bit of a record. In this movie, in particular, he kept wanting it to be more of a spoof. The script by Randy Feldman who is a bit of an action movie person, an action movie auteur has rewrites by Jeffrey Bohm, who was also rewriting and script-doctoring in the Lethal Weapon movies. And I shit you not, this is not an exaggeration, not one bit. I had to stop the movie about 13 minutes in to see what the fuck was going on, because I couldn't tell that this was not a Lethal Weapon spoof. And I do like me a Lethal Weapon spoof, but the one that I like is National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon with Sam Jackson and Emilio Estevez, if memory serves. And I like that movie, and Tim Curry and William Shatner. I like that movie, and I believe Kathy Ireland. I like that movie a lot. It is dumb how much I like that movie, but I am also dumb, so it tracks. It's congruent. John Peters is widely cited, though, as wanting this to be just a goofy, goofy movie. And, hey, it's always difficult to attribute The goodness or the badness of a movie to one person, but I mean, sometimes with some first-hand accounts, you you can kind of suss that out. And in Hollywood, right, especially in Hollywood, but I think in in the world at large, and I've I've heard this kind of saying, I don't remember where I heard it, but I just remember hearing it. So I'm sorry that I'm not doing good attribution. I am kind of just real blank on it. But the, the concept that I'm about to relate to you, I call the producer's fallacy. And again, I call it that because I don't know where I heard it or who said it. I just gave it a name. And a controversial figure, perhaps Kevin Smith, controversial as a filmmaker, uh, not for subject matter, but for actual film making, but a gifted raconteur, nonetheless, has one of these firsthand encounters regarding John Peters. And you can see it on YouTube in a two-part video called Kevin Smith-Superman Returns, if memory serves. But these real hands-on Uh, mega or super producers or whatever the case is, they tend to fall into this pattern of thinking where they attribute the success of a film to their intense involvement in the process, right? And filmmaking is a process that takes years. It's a lot. So they tend to attribute the success to just being all up in it, top to bottom, front to back. And then they attribute the failure of their films to a lack of involvement and they say I need to be involved more and I think it definitely shows here right bringing in a writer for rewrites to make it closer to the spoof that you want to be uh, forcing out the director uh, Andre Konchalovsky, who's a Russian director who I can't even begin to tell you anything about what he's worked on because I don't I don't know it but forcing out this director that you hired because he's, he's sick of your shit really and you know basically alienating your star who needs to then be the onset writer, director, and producer to keep the film together, and more on that. It's not a good look, it really isn't. But hey, there's Stallone. The one, the only. Stallone was the king of ego at this point in time, and I say that flippantly, because I did zero research into other egotistical actors, but he's he's up there, sure. But he's a hard worker. Started from humble but confident beginnings and really made something of himself, which is, I think, very respectable. But, uh, you know, he he definitely had some issues. He fired Barry Sonnenfeld off this movie, which um, if you're familiar with Barry Sonnenfeld's work, I talked about him a lot in Men in Black 2. But at this time, he was the Coen Brothers go-to director of photography. You know, you might know those Coen Brothers... The word on the street was that he wasn't lighting Stallone to his satisfaction. I think, I think, just maybe here, using critical thinking, we can we can say that Sonnenfeld may not have been meeting circum- certain Sonnenfeld may not have been meeting certain expectations from the thought process, where there was a disconnect, and he might have been trying to make a different kind kind of movie. Different type of movie, so to speak. Not that Stallone was going for Campy, per se, because he wasn't, and there was definitely some contention between him and Peters there, but you know, perhaps in the Gordian knot of production or, or pre-production, something was misheard or misunderstood or even maneuvered, which has happened, and he was let go. Stallone, again, wanting a more serious tone to the movie, being a serious man in serious movies, he ended up, according to an interview with Brian James, who was unrecognizable as Renquin, Renquang, Rencon, I don't know how to say his name. Uh, I'll go for Renquin or Henchperson, but this is also the guy that played Leon Kowalski in Blade Runner. Unrecognizable as a weird, clean-shaven, uh, not French, Cockney English guy. <laughs> um, but it it ended up with the movie being rewritten or being written for the first time on some occasions on the day, on the day of. And he says, and I'll I'll quote it. So Stallone started rewriting the script. The script wasn't really ready, but they were there to go. So when you got to go, you go. End quote. His part ended up being expanded and he ended up taking the kind of the main villain spot over Palance and, and kind of being this weird surrogate for Gary Busey's Mr. Joshua in Lethal Weapon. There's a lot going on with Stallone though. He he plays Ray Tango who is a, a wire-rimmed yuppie glasses wearing Armani wearing stocks trading improbable shot like badass super cop. I read somewhere that this was Sly and I'll use his nickname Sly trying to rehabilitate his image from being a meathead kind of elevating himself and um, hey you know what he he kind of pulls it off in a couple scenes. You know, good on you, mate. But, you know, now I guess this is as good a time as, as ending to get into the plot of this movie. And it's basically lethal weapon. It, it's lethal weapon, but weirdly more centered on the main characters in that they are notoriously good cops. The, quote, top two cops in the LAPD. They have. Completely different methodologies and sometimes even have silly things like giant laser sights on their guns. And the movie starts out with Stallone ignoring backup and taking down a speeding tanker truck with his Alante, which nobody liked, and shooting at the truck in order to somehow get it to slam on its brakes just in time to not crush him between the truck and the luxury convertible. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, he then fires off a quip to the uh, local cops. You know, they're like, oh, he's trying to be Rambo. And he's like, Rambo was a pussy. And then he shoots the tanker truck to reveal the fountain of cocaine that these uh, inept, uh, purportedly inept police officers were not finding in the truck. It's a lot. Russell's character, Gabriel Cash, is a bit more of the standard action movie fare and you know, perhaps just a really idealized and socialized Snake pliskin in execution. But with less caution. There's there's no risk to him in the movie, or less risk to him in the movie than there was in Escape from New York, which was really fraught with risk for the main character. They get framed by Jack Palance's very American eaves, and uh, they get sent to jail. The frame drop sucks, and the jail is probably too realistic to be interesting, but there is some big number fights in there. And, uh, there are definitely torture scenes, which, uh, was action catnip in the late eighties. They even did the hanging wet, uh, electrocution bit from lethal weapon, but then they do a jailbreak and go on the run and figure things out. And Terry Hatcher's Catherine doesn't even show up barely, but she does provide some femme sex appeal because, you know, there's a lot, uh, going on, and they give the audience access to a stripper dressing room. This all results in Kurt Russell in drag, which I thought was actually pretty funny. Again, ego checked out. He's not concerned with it at all. He's perfectly at ease as himself, and it's great. I neglected to mention, but it is in the trailer, the, uh, the naked prison co-shower scene where we also get a good look at Stallone and Russell's respective asses. You know, and again, throwing shade at Mel Gibson, whose ass was in every Lethal Weapon movie and also featured in the parody of Loaded Weapon where he's just oiled up and gratuitous butt shot in the moonlight kind of title. Loaded Weapon is wonderful. But then there's some, you know, kind of bullshit, ham-fisted attempt at getting Tango to hate cash because of the Catherine stuff. And then they get this, like, douchebag uh, dream truck you know, think of the, the truck from Back to the Future just on 10 steroids. And it's like this invincible fortress with a big gun on the side crossed with an SUV and it has like video chat. And they go and they, they kind of take on this like secret hideout with a long sequence of inexplicable escalation of vehicles and explosions that makes less spatial sense than the construction site scene in the original Gone in 60 Seconds. It's just a big truck doing cool jumps and explosions and bullets. They also state uh, canonically in the film that the truck will do 0 to 60 in 5.5 and, quote, low tens in the quarter. And uh, that that's some, um, listen, get fucked, whoever wrote that. That's some prepubescent schoolyard. My dad works at Ford and my uncle works at Nintendo shit. It's a hot mess. You know, there's some wild fights and guns and things, and a lot of that actually got edited out because the censors were uh they weren't real happy with the movie. And I think the sets are somewhat similarly juvenile. They kind of forego realism for mustache twiddling, as does the movie in general, to be to be honest. Eves has a, a video wall, and we all know that video walls were instantly Indicative of real evil bad villain types. They just, they have a lot of TVs and they have a really good universal remote. <laughs> and, and they weren't even good villains, uh, James Hong. And there's another kind of Lieutenant type that were set up to be mini bosses and they showed up and died immediately. And it would, it would be easy to continue to just rip into this movie in detail. But the reality of production is that it, this movie kind of never existed. It was it was a fantasy that existed in various states in the minds of various people, and it it didn't really pan out because that whole movie making part about making movies didn't fully pan out. It is a process. It's it's difficult to make movies, team, and not every movie makes it. It just, I hadn't seen this movie, I didn't know anything about it except for the name, which was you know patently ridiculous. But I just jumped in both feet and i found something and it wasn't it wasn't i don't know what I, I wasn't looking for anything i didn't come in with any expectations but what i found i found lacking the dvd isn't a great transfer either but that's that's what i had and firing a, a dp to bring your own in is you know fine i guess the movie the movie really doesn't look like much at all uh there's a ton of low angle hero shots and you know, I don't know, I, don't, I didn't find the the sets or the lighting to be terribly interesting, no camera moves. It's fine, it's it's not all doom and gloom. The bad cop, worst cop scene on the rooftop of what I believe might be the central library. You know, and if anybody sees this, and not this, the, the podcast, because there's no video component, but if anybody sees this scene, bad cop, worst cop, and they remember what building this is, Hit me up, because I'm going off a vague memory from playing L.A. Noire, however many years ago. Uh, that scene was fun. There are some bad one-liners, but there there are some good one-liners, and I must posit the question. Are there actually any good one-liners? It does crib a lot of Shane Black bravado, but not a lot of Shane Black style. Almost none of it. I can see how this movie might have influenced a lot of people, though. I was definitely getting a Bad Boys vibe from it. The original Bad Boys didn't feel so different as much as it felt more refined. It had time and it lived in the process longer, as well as probably being granted more artistic license, I think. But, you know, (sighs) Tango is is kind of a third-rate bond in terms of wisecracks and style, And uh, Cash comes off as kind of fairly generic action hero. I think that um, even Arnold Schwarzenegger's look in Last Action Hero, spoiler alert, that's going to be the next episode, is is somewhat derived from it with like, uh, and obviously Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, but kind of the military jacket and uh, looseness or or flamboyancy uh, to him. The, the wink and the nod at the audience. So, uh, hey, if you haven't seen Tango and Cash, probably don't. You're not missing anything. You can go on YouTube. You'll probably find a collection of anything worth seeing from it. But it's interesting to have existed. It is interesting to have impacted so many people in so many different ways. It is an examination of history of what didn't make it what what could have been right and i think this movie could have been something i definitely feel something in it but i do believe that other films came in the wake of it and just created something better so anyway that's me just take it easy be nice uh oh, at cool mark d on twitter more podcasts mark's movie collection and scumbags.com s e u m m B-A-G-S. And forgot to mention Mark D20 on Letterboxd. Hit me up. Let me know.